In Ezekiel chapter 38, at the beginning of the verse, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed with great company, with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops, the house of Togarmar or Beth Togarmar from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready. You and all your companies that are gathered about you and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited in the latter days. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against a people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God on that day when my people Israel dwell safely. Will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hollowed in you, O Gog. Before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God. Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days of the servants, the prophets of Israel who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? And it will come to pass in the, at that same time when God comes up against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my 
fury will show in my face for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. Surely in that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Then mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. Every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding, rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. In his book, Utmost for My Highest, Oswald Chambers writes, The death of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment in history of the very mind and the very intent of God. There is no place for seeing Jesus Christ as a martyr. His death was not something that just happened to him, something that might have been prevented. His death was the very reason he came. In John 17:4, Jesus said, I have finished the work you have given to do. Jesus came and he finishes the work as far as the resolution of sin and reconciliation with the father. But it would appear that God's intention is still incomplete. That God has a plan and a purpose for the future. And that is the big question that we ask. What is God's intention towards this world? And you probably know that it's his will that none perish and that all have everlasting life. But you also probably know that there will come a point when human history will have run its course and that God will judge this world. In this series, we're asking the question about the wars of the end times. How many will there be and when will they occur? And we've even asked the question, well, why are we even asking this question? Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you weren't willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you, you will see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus makes the prediction of the destruction of the Jewish temple. He asks his disciples about these things. The disciples ask him, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? Jesus mentions the destruction of the temple. He mentions wars and rumors of wars. And he says, see that you aren't troubled. These things must come to pass in Matthew 24, verse 6. 
Jesus has finished the work of sacrifice and redemption on the cross. But God has unfinished business with the Gentile nations and with the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, on my radio program today, someone was asking me about replacement theology and whether or not God has unfinished business with the Jew. And I, I indicated that Jesus died in a Jewish Jerusalem. The big question is, what kind of a Jerusalem will Jesus return to? Will it be Jewish? Will it be occupied? In our last meeting, we talked about the next prophetic war, and I suggested that the next prophetic war, what might be what what might be what David Reagan calls the war of extermination hinted in Psalm 83. The psalm bluntly describes a war launched by Israel's neighbors for the express purpose of wiping out Israel as a nation in in. Psalm 83, 4, Dave Reagan and Bill Salas argue that this war will produce the conditions talked about in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, a place where Israel has expanded borders, a place where Israel is safe and prosperous. And so are Israel's neighbors right at this very moment Ready for war? Or are they probing Israel and testing Israel? Is it possible that Iran is trying to determine Israel's capabilities and resolve to protect herself and defend herself? Will the tiny nation of Israel in your lifetime shrink back to the 1967 borders And some of you are probably unfamiliar with that. And I probably should have put a map up. I have one in the back of my Bible that shows the Holy Land in modern times. And it shows the borders of Israel prior to 1967, absent the Golan Heights, absent the West Bank, absent the Gaza Strip. That's what Israel looked like before 1967. After 1967, it included the Golan, it included the West Bank, it included a united Jerusalem, it included Gaza Strip. According to this present administration, when he was asked about the circumstances of Israel, he said that he would like to see Israel return to the pre-1967 borders. The prime minister made it abundantly clear that you're talking foolish talk. He basically said that a pre-1967 borders makes an Israel that is indefensible. The suggestion was met with a blunt expression from the, the prime minister of Israel, who said not only were the borders indefensible, but it would put the very nation's existence at risk. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 6, we're told that in the end times, Israel will be like a fire pot among pieces of wood, a flaming torch among sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand on, on, and on the left hand the surrounding peoples. There seems to be good evidence that in the future, Israel's borders will not shrink, but they will expand. In Amos chapter 9, verse 15, we're told that once Israel is reestablished in the land, this is what it says in Amos 9, 15, they will never be rooted from the land ever again. So what are we to think of that? 
What I think we should think about that is that no matter what threats are made against Israel, it should cause you to laugh out loud and say, "Uh oh, the nation of Israel is about to expand. Now, remember, the tiny nation has faced several tests in its history. A coalition of Arab nations made every effort to wrap its umbilical cord around its own neck and choke it to death on May of 1948. It was once again tested in 1956. It was once again tested in 1967. It was once again tested in 1973. It was once again tested in 1981. And so again, over and over again, you see plots, wars, incursions. But guess what? None of those fulfilled Ezekiel chapter 37 and 38. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible, you know about the short story in Ezekiel chapter 37, where the prophet is given a vision of, of dry bones. And in that vision, Ezekiel sees dead bones everywhere. He's asked the question by the Lord in Ezekiel 37, verse 3. If you just turn the page back, one page. In verse 3 it says, And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. In other words, the Lord is asking him, Can something so utterly, terribly, predictably, certainly dead Can it come back to life? The prophet wisely responds, you know, the Lord commands Ezekiel to speak to the dead bones. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God promises to breathe new life into dead bones. They came back to life as an exceeding great army in verse 11. And then the Lord gives the explanation that the bones are the whole house of Israel. Not half the house. The whole house, the dead will come back to life. They will inhabit the land, a nation that was seemingly dead and could not come back to life. That faced no possibility of coming back to life, comes back to life in a single day under a single circumstance. And by the way, that didn't happen that long ago, May 1968. The prophet Ezekiel predicted that someday Israel would be invaded by an enemy confederation led by a warrior named Gog, who is mentioned 11 times in Ezekiel 38 and 39 from the land of Magog. And where is that land? By the way, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 and then Genesis chapter 10, there is a list of nations. It says, now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Ham, Shem, Japheth. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Jabin, Tubal, Meshach, Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, Togarmah. Why is all of that important to us and our study? Because we're going to go through a list of names and the names are going to be very unfamiliar to some of you. And you might be wondering, well, why doesn't Ezekiel just say 
Turkey, Syria, Lebanon. Because the truth is, names change over the course of history. And so the way the Bible refers to names is the name of the place of the progenitor. And so this is why, for instance, Babylon is sometimes called Elam. Because it is the territory of the people called the Elamites. This is why parts of Jordan were called Moab and Ammon. Because they were named after the sons of Lot. And so... A warrior comes and he comes from the land of Magog. When will this happen? When when is all of this going to happen? And this is the sixty four dollar question. Is it going to happen just prior to the rapture? Will it happen just after the rapture? Will it happen after the Antichrist signs a peace treaty, thus lulling Israel into a false sense of security and peace? As you can imagine, throughout history, some Bible teachers have placed this at the very beginning of the tribulation. Some delay this war until in the middle of the tribulation. Some even put it at the end of the tribulation. Some people say that it has already taken place in history and that um, we're reading it and we're just reading history. But we're going to show that that isn't true. More and more scholars are suggesting the events may take place prior to the rapture. Now, people who hold that view would include people like Joel Rosenberg, people like um, Tim LaHaye. Those of you who have led the Left Behind series, that's the position that they take. My friend Ron Rhodes believes that the best scenario puts the war of Gog and Magog some three and one half years Prior to the tribulation. And one reason Ron gives for this is found in Ezekiel chapter 39 verse 7. Where it says that the Jews spend seven years burning the weapons from this particular war. 39.7 So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord. The Holy One. And so there is this burning down uh, and disassembling of the weapons. Um, It could very well be that the burning of the is captured again. Revelation says that they run out of the land in the middle of the tribulation in, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And so since the middle of the tribulation will occur three and a half years into the seven year period, that means the only way the Jews could spend seven years burning the weapons for the war is to start at least three and a half years before the tribulation begins. Now, remember that the burning of the weapons that are described in these passages may refer refer to captured nuclear material because apparently whatever it is that they capture and however it is that they use it it serves as an energy source in the future i'm convinced that the rapture could take place at any moment and because i'm convinced that the rapture could take place at any moment these events could unfold before the rapture Immediately after the rapture or sometime during the tribulation. But again, whatever Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, if they are two parts of the same puzzle piece, 
it explains why the immediate neighbors are gone, but why this coalition of other countries come for yet another invasion of Israel. Now, remember, the rapture of the church doesn't mark the beginning of the tribulation period. A chronological clue is given in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Some of you have may have grown up in a circumstance where you thought, okay, the rapture is going to take place. That's going to usher in the seven years of tribulation. But that's not necessarily true. In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. This is the upcoming Holocaust. They will be led away captive to, to all nations. That's the destruction of the temple. It's then Jesus gives the only chronological clue in, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When did the times of the Gentiles begin? Apparently, it begins in Daniel chapter 11 and the events in the book of Daniel as the dream takes place of Nebuchadnezzar. And there is a kingdom, if you will, of Babylon and then a subsequent kingdom of the Medes and the Persians and a subsequent kingdom of the Greeks and a subsequent kingdom of the Romans. And then a vision of a future kingdom that will take place sometime in the far future but again, it seems to be a time in which God is dealing with the nations of the world. Some Bible teachers have suggested that the times of the Gentiles is indicated by the presence or the absence of Gentiles in the holy city of Jerusalem. Some have suggested that when Israel became a nation in 1948, guess what? Jerusalem was still occupied by the Jordanian King and half of Jerusalem went to the side of Israel. The other half of Jerusalem remained in Muslim hands and remained in Muslim hands until 1967 when the holy city was ultimately united. And yet Muslims still occupy the Temple Mount. So is it safe to say that Gentiles Still roam around Jerusalem? The answer is yes. So, when does the time of the Gentiles come to an abrupt and final end? I wish I had the answer for you. I don't know. I can guess. My guess would be number one. When Israel has full occupation of the Temple Mount and all of Jerusalem, that it is completely unilaterally and specifically controlled by Jewish people. It could very well be that the time of the Gentiles begins and ends with the rapture. What are some... Of the strengths that the time of the Gentiles comes to an end with the catching away 
of the church. Well, it could very well be that now all of the plans and purposes that God has had to draw out a bride from amongst the Gentile nations comes to an abrupt halt and the clock starts ticking. But I'm going to suggest to you, whatever that clock is and however the clock starts ticking, it's going to take place when an Antichrist appears on the scene and then makes a covenant with the Jews and surrounding nations and a promise of peace. This could be the thing that initiates this particular war because the Jews are living in what seems to be a negotiated peace. Israel will need, like I said, seven years to burn the weapons and seven months to bury the dead The United Coalition seems to largely comprise jihadi Muslims who want to exterminate Israel. A supernatural intervention brings the end of the war. And so, again, a clue is given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. In Deuteronomy, it says, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, Then in latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God, and you will obey him. The word in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 30, that's translated distress is the same Hebrew word that's translated tribulation, the time of Jacob's sorrow. It may be that it's the tribulation that brings the nation to a place of humility and submission so that they will trust the Lord. Tommy Ice believes that the battle of Gog and Magog will take place after the rapture, but before the tribulation. And for many years, people didn't even believe that such a time could exist. He argues that the world will be in chaos after the rapture, but before this pre-tribulation event, that Russia and a Muslim coalition will see an opportunity to destroy a friendless Israel. And also, absent this radical jihad coalition, the Antichrist will have an easier time subjecting the world to his rule. Because many people say, what's going to happen to all of the Muslims? Because the Muslims will never submit to an Antichrist. I actually agree with that. So we're left with three things. Like we talked about the last time we were together. Occupation. Destruction. Conversion. All of the Muslim lands are occupied. Destroyed. Or converted. People who place the battle of Gog and Magog at the beginning of the tribulation would include people like John Walvoord, who I deeply respect, Dwight Pentecost, who I deeply respect, Charles Ryrie, who I deeply respect, Herman Hoyt and Mark Hitchcock, who's a good friend, who I deeply respect. They argue that the peace spoken of in Ezekiel is based on the ill-fated covenant forged by the Antichrist with the surrounding nations. Again, this provides the global conditions necessary for a revived Roman Empire to take the ascendancy, to seize world control. But it doesn't explain what happens to China, Japan, and the Far East. So, the problem with placing the war of Gog and Magog during the tribulation 
means that the burning of the weapons continues well into the millennial kingdom. And if Jesus is present to provide for the needs of the earth, if the curse is partially lifted, if the earth is reconditioned, Israel doesn't need to burn the weapons for fuel. Some suggest that both this war and the war mentioned in Revelation are exactly the same war. The the strength of that view is that both wars take place in the latter days. Both describe invaders being eaten by wild animals and fowl. The problem is that they don't match up. The Battle of Gog and Magog, the specific nations are Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Russia, Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Libya, possibly Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Algeria, Tunisia. These are the nations that come. But in the book of Revelation, it's everybody in the whole earth. In Joel chapter 3 verse 2. In Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8. In Zechariah chapter 12 verse 3. So which is it? Before the tribulation? Before the rapture? After the rapture? But before the tribulation? At the beginning of the tribulation? In the middle of the tribulation? At the very end of the tribulation, my best guess, based on my understanding of all of the passages with the strengths and weaknesses under consideration, I tend to agree with Ron Rhodes that this is something that has to happen at least three and a half years before the beginning of the tribulation. But is it possible that that could be right before the rapture? It could be. But everyone who holds that position has to keep in mind and constantly reiterate, are, is there anything that has to happen prior to the rapture of the church? My own belief is no. There's no prophetic issue that has been left unresolved that Jesus could come back at any moment. But again, if the rapture is not what signals the beginning of the tribulation, and if there is a period of time after the rapture but before the tribulation, then it would mean that this particular event would have to take place rapidly. Now, the leader is identified as Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. In verse 1 where it says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Gog, unlike the other places, seems to be the name of a person. It's a proper name. It's not a place as much as it is a person. And some have identified this figure with, in ancient history, a a, a king named Gyges, G-Y-G-E-S, or Guju. He he was a 7th century Lydian king mentioned in six inscriptions of the Assyrian monarch Ashurbanipal. Now, why is all of this important? Because this particular king was related to a king who you know as Midas. Do you remember the saying, it was richest King Midas, that everything he touched would turn to gold? The Lydians basically discovered and processed gold and invented money. Did you know that? 
As a matter of fact, in the 7th century B.C., when the Lydians were discovering money and making it a unit of exchange, the same was true of the Chinese in the 7th century B.C. China and Anatolia, or Turkey, or this particular place, discovers money at exactly the same time. Now, remember, money is a man-made construct in order to conduct business. Is there a relationship between this guy and this future guy? Is Gog the Antichrist? Clearly, he is an Antichrist. He stands against God and the things of God and the people of God. But whether or not he is the Antichrist depends on where you place the end time chronology of this battle like we've already talked about. Does it take place before the rapture, immediately after the rapture, before the tribulation, or during the tribulation? The land of Rosh, or Ross, is a noun. It's an actual land. But again, in this particular instance, there are those people who would say, well, you know, you Christians who say that the Prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, that Rosh is Russia, and just because Rosh sounds like Russia, this is part of the Cold War mentality because you guys are scared to death of the commies and the Ruskies and the Russians. It sounds all very compelling, particularly if a person who knows history, who says, do you realize that Russia is a 10th century invention. And so it can't mean this. Well, again, what that person doesn't understand is that Ross and Rus appear in the Septuagint, which is 700 years before the Latin Vulgate, 200 years B.C., In 2600 B.C., ancient Egyptian and other Middle Eastern inscription have Sargon's inscriptions, a a cylinder of Azurbanipal, the annual by Shennacherib, five times in Ugaritic text. There is a people called the people of Rosh, Rash, Reshu. And so they do exist. Ninth century B.C. Assyrians that predate Ezekiel's text speak of a group of people who live north of the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea. Tenth century Byzantine writers identify a group of Scythian people living in the northern parts of Taurus along the river Volga as Rhos. The early Byzantine church claimed that the Rhos people lived in the furthest part north of Greece. Cyril and Barber went in the 7th century with the gospel to these group of people, took a language that they spoke. They had no alphabetic system whatsoever and created the Cyrillic language and the Russian alphabet so that these people could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who are they? Russia. Russia seems to be. The group of choice. Russia has established military and economic ties with the nations involved in the coalition. But what's interesting is that this coalition has never occurred up until now. Even one year ago, Turkey was for the most part oriented towards the West. No longer. Russia never had diplomatic relations and strong ties with Iran until now. 
So Russia, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, house of Togermah. There are nine proper names, by the way, listed in the text. The land of Magog. Who are these people? Remember what I said to you earlier when you go all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 10? The people, the great grandson of Noah, settled in the place just next to the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, most of Eastern Europe. Most modern Bible scholars and teachers will say that the land is Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, possibly part of Afghanistan. Do you know what all of these places have in common? They're all Islamist countries, without exception. What else do they have in common? A population of 60 million people. In verse 3 it says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, Tubal. Now, Meshach and Tubal are hard to locate. When I was a kid, first starting out reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, teaching the Bible... I was told that this was Moscow and Tobolsk, but I've since come to believe that that isn't even possible because they were trading partners with Tyre, according to Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 13. Almost certainly these are the Moshkoi, Tiburonoi. These are the Greek writings of Tabal and Musco that are listed in the Assyrian inscriptions. This may not mean anything at all to you, but what it does is it places the geography of this particular group of people as Anatolia or Turkey. Now, if you look straight north of Lebanon and you see that little splotch, that's who that is. So the allies of Gog are spoken of in verses four through seven. I will turn you around. I will put hooks into your jaws. I will lead you out with your army, your horses, your horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers, shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Persia mentioned 35 times. Modern Iran becomes the Iranian state in March 1935. Present population, 68 million. Ethiopia is translated from the word Kush. This is the land of the people south of the Nile Valley. They were called Kusu by the Assyrians, Kos by the Babylonians, Nubia by the Greeks. Their tribal lands were south of the modern city of Khartoum. Where is that? Sudan. That's the Sudanese area. By the way, what does Sudan have in common with Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Turkey? All Islamic. By the way, Sudan was, were hardline Islamists in the Gulf War. And guess who lived there from 1991 to 1996? Osama bin Laden. That was his, it's the favorite terrorist hideout. Now, again, when you start to do the geography and you note that the Sudan 
Iran, Turkey, Turkmenistan, you see all of... I know you probably didn't think, I didn't know it was going to be a geography lesson. But guess what? This is going to be important. Libya is actually translated put, putu. This is a word that meant distant. It meant distant from the west of the Egypt. I'm going to say it's modern Libya. It may include Algeria and Tunisia. But do you know what modern Libya, Algeria and Tunisia have in common with the Sudan, Egypt, Turkey, and all of those? In Spanish, I want to say, Aquinoestan. That just means he's not really here. When we were looking for Osama bin Laden, it made, the joke makes a whole lot more sense in Spanish. Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Aquinoestan. Okay. He's not here. Okay, Gomer and all of his troops, the house of Togermah, Gomer was sometimes years ago identified with Germany and East Germany. Some Bible scholars would cite Kimmerian or Cimmerian, Kimmeriroi in the Akkadian language, Gimara. There was an 8th century inscription. Josephus said that these people were the people of Galatia. Again, it puts it in modern Turkey. So the list of this coalition, Russia, Turkey, Central Asia, Iran, Sudan, Libya. What would bring about that kind of a coalition? And then an invitation to come and occupy that particular area. Let me tell you why I think it makes way more sense for Psalm 83 to have been fulfilled. Because if Israel has absorbed part of Egypt, they're not mentioned in the, in the text. Jordan, they're not mentioned in the text. Iraq is conspicuous by its absence. Lebanon is conspicuous by its absence. Syria is conspicuous by its absence. I want to suggest to you that there seems to be good prophetic evidence that Israel will expand into those areas, absorb some of those areas, and even control some of its wealth. By the way, one of the largest gas reserves ever discovered has been now discovered in Israel. So when people say, well, why would anyone want that little tiny little dirt place. And again, remember what we've already learned. The presence of Israel in that particular place is like having a broken tooth among the Muslim nations. Have you ever had a broken tooth? My tooth broke last week. It filled with pus and became horribly infected. When you have a broken tooth, your whole jaw hurts. When your whole jaw hurts, your whole head hurts. Have you ever had pain that was so bad that you couldn't even go to sleep? Usually, if you go to sleep, the pain is somewhat relieved. For the people of Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, all of these around, Israel is like this throbbing, broken teeth tooth that will not go away. And so you hear this constant rhetoric. 
Let's pull the tooth. Let's pull the tooth. Well, it doesn't look like it's going to come out anytime soon. As a matter of fact, I think the Lord is going to give it a crown. (laughs) Now, there are some people who believe that this war is a description of a war that took place hundreds, thousands of years ago that somewhat talked about in Esther chapter 9. They say, you know what? Um, These things were already fulfilled. Um, Remember, the Jews were at risk. They were attacked in cities. But again, the facts don't seem to fit. In verse 7, it says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be be a guard for them. After many days, you will be visited in the latter years. And again, up until verse 8, after many days, you will be visited. How many days? Again, Israel becomes a nation in 1948. Do the math. 58, 68, 78, 88, 98, 08. In 18, they will be celebrating their 70th year as a nation. After many days, you will be visited. In the latter years, you will come into the land of those who brought you back from the sword, gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel. Esther chapter 9, the enemies are killed in Persia. Here, the people are killed on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations. The Jewish people were brought from around the world, and now all of them dwell safely. Remember what we talked about last week. Is Israel dwelling safely right now? No. With Hamas having 14,000 rockets, having spent maybe a thousand of those rockets with Hezbollah in the north, with surrounded by perennial enemies, with Turkey calling them, calling them terrorists, with Egypt calling them vermin, with Iran saying they cannot continue to exist. Again, does peace seem to be the right way of describing their circumstances. No, but yet this is going to be one of those situations when they are gathered in peace. I'm going to suggest to you that there's only two ways that I can envision peace for this particular group. And that is if a temporary incursion has taken place where part of Jordan, even Iraq, maybe even Syria and Lebanon have been absorbed and they have literally frightened their neighbors into backing off. The only other thing that seems to make sense to me is if a world leader comes on the scene and negotiates what looks like not just a phony peace, but some sort of real peace. And so the celebration of Purim, by the way, included the reading of the book of Esther, but never the book of Ezekiel. And so, again, I'm going to suggest to you that the Jewish rabbis never, ever, ever, ever suggested that Ezekiel 38 and 39 was fulfilled by overcoming Haman and the threat to the Jewish people that's listed in the book of Esther. I think that All of the evidence seems to indicate that this is something that's going to take place in the future. 
And so the Lord says, you will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud. You and your troops and many peoples with you. Imagine, James, put up the, the, the graphic of the European thing where you see, again, the, the arrows coming down into the Middle East. Well, that's part of it. But you, you, you see that? The Arab allies coming from the south, Magog from the north, Gog. Again, I think that Gog is probably not just simply a place, but a person. But if the prince of that particular place is coming down. Now, imagine. Remember what we've said, even using modern statistics. If there are 68 million people coming from Magog, if there are another 300 million that they're surrounded by, Again, we're talking about literally maybe as much as a hundred million people converging on Israel. Again, you're a Las Vegas odds maker. What are the chances of Israel's survival? The same exact statistic that we can get 16 trillion dollars out of debt (laughs) that means it looks pretty hopeless but here here's the point in order for this issue to be resolved it's going to take a supernatural intervention and again there is the statement that's made in verse 10 thus says the lord god on that day It shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. The leader will contemplate life without Israel. That that if ever there was a time for it to be vulnerable, a time when it can be struck, a time when it can be overwhelmed and a time when it can be over. Destroyed, You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. The implication being they are sitting ducks. They are a ripe plum. They're ready to be taken. Again, the motivation seems to be to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are against inhabited against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock goods who dwell in the midst of the land. And again, in the midst of the land is a technical term which seems to me to indicate they're firmly entrenched in the land and they're occupying a great amount of territory. So what are the motives for war? It is wealth. It is an invincible army against an unprotected people. And the text says something remarkable. That God is going to take these thoughts like a hook and drag them down into the conflict. In verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, that's Saudi Arabia, the merchants of Tarshish, who is that? And all their young lions. The merchants of Tarshish, ancient Tarshish was sometimes pictured as the Straits of Hercules or the Pillars of Gibraltar, which is the very tip of Africa and the very tip of Spain. Some have suggested that these particular people and all their young lions, this is all of the offspring of Britain and France and Spain. Who are their offspring? Central and South America, 
North America and Canada, they will say. Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? In other words, hey, are you really going to do this? Are you going to attack them? And note, the events are in the latter days, verse 16, in the last days, verse 16. How are we to think about this? Whatever is motivating them to come and whatever creates the mechanism for this coalition. It's going to spell disaster for them because the Bible says that they're going to be annihilated. In verse 17, it says. It was foretold in former days, thus says the Lord God, are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I will bring you against them? In other words, is it true? Are you going to come and are you going to fulfill the prophecies? And it's fulfilled in the latter days. The Jewish people will recognize when they come and when God destroys them. That it's God who supernaturally intervened. Again, Israel is being invaded by what seems like an invincible force to an unprotected people. And how will the Lord destroy this coming army? Apparently with a three-prong attack in verses 19 through 20. All living things will quake and shake at the presence of the Lord. The second seems to be confusion and mutiny in the ranks of the enemy troops in verse 21. The third line of attack seems to be the use of the sword, disease, flood, hailstones, fire, brimstone. In other words, there's some sort of climatological event of such enormous proportions that the invading army is supernaturally destroyed by what looks like climate change. Flooding, hailstones, fire, brimstone. Now, some have suggested that the fire from heaven and the brimstone from heaven might be a nuclear exchange. The problem with that view is that a nuclear exchange that would destroy that many people, it would make perfect sense that it would take a very long time to bury the dead. The, the, in the next chapter, it describes burying the dead for seven months and burning the munitions for seven years. In verse four of, of verse thirty nine, it, it says, you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and your troops and the people who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey, to every sort of beast to be devoured. You shall fall in the open fields. Thirty nine six. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live security or securely in the coastlands. What does that mean? I will send fire on Magog. And those who live securely in the coastlands, what does that mean? Does that mean that this is an all out nuclear exchange that results in the annihilation of people living in the coastal regions of the planet Earth? 
Whatever else it means. In verse 23, it says, thus, I will magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, whatever else this thing does, it will cause Israel for the first time. I'm going to suggest for the first time. To awaken to the idea that the God of the Bible and the God of Israel is alive and true and supernatural and superintending the things of Israel. And it could very well be that this is what triggers the events that are described in the book of Revelation where 144,000 supercharged evangelists emerge and they begin to understand something that the Bible is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the gospel is true and that God's unfinished plan and purpose for Israel is going to include the coming of the Messiah. And for the first time, Jewish people in mass are going to say Messiah isn't coming for the first time. He's coming for the second time. And so. I have to stop. But we'll talk more about the coming wars next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again commit this time to you. Again, Lord, we know that this coalition of of radical Islam, which we're going to talk about more. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We praise you that more human beings have come to a saving knowledge In the Lord Jesus Christ for Muslim countries in the last 20 years than in the last 13 centuries. For reasons that we are delighted, Lord. You are presenting the claims of Christ and literally tens of thousands of Muslims from all of these countries are experiencing hope in the gospel. Some are seeing dreams and visions receiving visitations, Lord. They're they're stumbling across Bibles. They're reading the New Testament. They're understanding the promises and they're getting saved. And Lord, we also thank you that more Jewish people have considered the claims of Christ and are convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord than ever before. But Lord, we know that we are facing a, a difficult task. That there is huge amounts of unbelief that are keeping people from having a right relationship with you. And for some, it's going to take a terrible tragedy to awaken in their hearts the truth about the reality of who Jesus is. Lord, we know that you've always been faithful and we know that you've always been true. And we also know, Lord, that every prophecy that you've made really falls into only two categories. Those that are fulfilled and those that are left unfulfilled. But the track record is so profound and so impressive that, Lord, we can't afford to ignore anything that you say about what's going to happen in the future. So, Lord, we pray that we would stay tuned to the future channel. That, Lord, we would see what things could happen. Lord, we pray that we would keep 
our eyes fixed on you and that our hearts and affections would be focused on you. Lord, we pray that we would remember the literally hundreds of millions of Muslims and the millions of Jews who are estranged from you, who have never known you. Lord, we pray that we could be used as vessels to uh, present the claims of Christ over and over again. And again, Father, we pray that we would take the information that we learn and we would use it in a way that is powerful, helpful, edifying. In Jesus' name, amen.